Great worship. And everyone said? Amen. That doesn't mean my message is over. It just means the music is over. So don't get too excited. Uh, Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. We're continuing our series on the Ten Commandments then and now. And we'll, tonight we'll be looking at the fourth commandment in verses 8 through 11. Uh, uh, but that's where they're at tonight. And uh, I look forward to dealing with this text. This is perhaps one of the strangest commandments. Uh, a lot of the commandments are strange for non-Christians just because it's morality and there's God telling me what I can and cannot do. And that may be hard for some of you to swallow, depending on your background. But even for Christians, the fourth command is a little bit interesting. Uh, we know it's in the Bible. We know it has to mean something. Um, but if you've talked about it much with other Christians, you realize people have differing opinions about what this commandment means and how we're supposed to obey it today. And I think by the end of the service, um, uh, we'll, we'll be on a little bit firmer ground, perhaps, than you have been before. Uh, the word, as we explore it, as we see connections in it, as we take it seriously with the help of the Holy Spirit, it brings clarity and light where there once was confusion and darkness. And so our time spent in the Bible as we explore this fourth commandment will not be wasted uh, for the next few moments this evening. So Exodus chapter 20, we're going to begin our reading in verse 8. You can follow along silently as I uh, read out loud. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and hallowed it. Would you bow with me just for a quick word of prayer before we continue? Father, as we sit under the ministry of your word tonight, we pray that you would use it for your purposes in our lives and in our souls. Uh, the things we do not know, use your word to teach us. The things that we don't have, use your word to give us. And that thing that we are not yet, that you want us to become, use your word to make us. We ask that during uh, the preaching, we would be hearing not just the voice of a mere person, uh, but ultimately that we would be hearing from you uh, as you work in our hearts. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Um, we love feeling or being productive. Some of you love being productive, others of you aren't productive, but you at least want to feel productive, right? Uh, we love checklists and we love marking things off. We may not enjoy the activity on our checklist, but we love the feeling of having a checklist that has lines all over it. We love productivity apps. Uh, this afternoon, as I was uh, preparing uh, this sermon, I came across an article about productivity apps and it was the 27 top productivity apps that you should download. 
Now, that's a lot of apps. I don't even think I have 27 apps on my phone. But it's ironic that they were productivity apps. And evidently, um, according to the people that make these things, if you have uh, a lot of productivity apps that you're working with, you'll be able to get more done. Now, I, I actually didn't finish the article because I got bored with it, and I ran out of time, ironically. Perhaps if I would have had one of the apps, I could have finished it. So I don't know what the last 14 are, but the first 13, you know, it's one of those things, man, that's only $20 a month. Like, I, I want to buy that. And I think, David, what are you saying? What a waste of money. Because the last one he bought, you didn't use, right? Have you been there? Okay. We love feeling productive. And our society has almost completely abandoned senses of, uh, any sense of guilt and shame, but something people still feel shame about in our accomplishment-driven mechanistic society is wasted time, not being productive, not getting done what you wanted to get done. And of course, we have all kinds of ways to track time. The, the, The clock in your living room is a traditional example. We wear watches. Our phones have the time on the very home screen. There's two things you can have on your home screen if you have a smartphone. A picture of you or a loved one, I mean, probably a loved one unless you're a narcissist and have your home screen as a picture of your face. And the other thing that we want on our home screen is the time, right? Because we want to track it. Our microwaves have clocks. And if you have one of those cool refrigerators, even your refrigerator has a clock on it in case the microwave is, you have, your kitchen is just so large, I guess, the microwave and the stove, the microwave is over, it's just too hard to turn your head that far and you want to know what time it is. Of course, they all say different times. That can be frustrating. We love feeling and being busy and we're terrified of wasted time. And yet one of God's commands essentially comes down to this. He tells us a lot of things in the Ten Commandments. Worship me alone, that makes sense. Don't use my name in vain, that makes sense. Don't kill people, don't lie, don't commit adultery. But then the fourth command is essentially this. If you want to be my people, then on a regular basis, stop doing stuff. That's hard for some of us to hear. It was just as hard for the Israelites to hear because... In their society, you didn't have a handful of people who worked in agriculture. Everybody worked in agriculture. If you don't get things planted in time, if you don't get the, the well dug in time, it could mean running out of food or water and there's no Dillons to go to. And yet they were told to do something that none of their pagan neighbors did. One day a week, don't work. This was shocking for them, and in our productivity-driven society, it's also a little shocking for us. So, uh, why is this in the Bible, and what does it mean? Well, uh, first in your handout, you'll see we're going to talk about the meaning of the command. The meaning of the command. Uh, When you look at the Ten Commandments, there's basically two categories. How we treat other people, that is love of neighbor, uh, numbers 5 through 10. And then in the first four, we have how we treat God. Uh, J.I. Packer connects the first four commandments this way. In case you thought these first four commands are completely random and, and separate from each other, he connects them this way. He says, The first commandment tests our loyalty to God, our ultimate allegiance. 
The second tests our imagination, how we think about God. The third tests our speech. And the fourth, how we use our time. How we use our time. Now, a lot of us in here already know, before you came to church tonight, you already thought of your worship as essentially spiritual, right? You probably know your speech is spiritual. You can say things with your words that are godly, and you can say things that are ungodly. I think all of us have kind of bought into that. We would agree, to some degree, that there are things that we can say that are sinful, right? And we know that how we talk about God and, and, and how we imagine God can be in categories of right or wrong. But do you ever think of rest as spiritual? I mean, just imagine that Pastor Tyler wants to come to your home and meet with you and do a checkup on your family's spiritual health. He asks how, if you have children, how is, how, how is the discipline with the children going? Are they, are they becoming respectful? Are you training them? He may ask, how's your Bible reading going? Are you reading your Bible? And if some of you knew he was visiting, you would read your Bible just that morning so you could say yes, right? It's the ones that are smiling right now. I see you. Uh, He's going to ask, like, how is your prayer life going? I mean, those are all things we would expect. But what if pastor asked you this? Hey, have you been sleeping enough? Now, now some of you would say, well, that's, that's not a question that he should be asking. Maybe that's a question that my doctor or my, my therapist should be asking, but what does that have to do with me as a Christian? It's not my pastor's business how much time I sleep, how much rest I get. But what if it is? What if the fourth commandment means that how we balance our work and rest is actually part of our relationship with God? And that by not resting enough we could be sinning. I want to look at this command in, in three parts. Verse 8 gives us the what. Verses 9 and 10 gives us the how. And then in verse 11, we have the why. And what, what we will discover is how we treat this work-rest balance, whether or not we rest, is not merely physical. It is very much spiritual. Christians believe that the body is a part of who we are. Unlike the Gnostics thought, you are not a soul that happens to be stuck in a body. You are a soul body. You are an embodied soul. Your body is part of who you are. That's why what with you, what, what you do with your body is part of how you live before God. And it's part of how you're going to give an account to God. How you use your body. So this, this command is going to help us understand how rest plays into that. All right, let's look at the what. Verse number eight. Look down in your Bibles at verse number eight. This is where God introduces the Sabbath. The word Sabbath just means rest. It means cessation. Uh, Essentially, to Sabbath is to stop doing things for a certain period of time. And they were told they were going to work six days, and then they're going to have a Sabbath day on the seventh day, where they would not do anything. Now, this, uh, this day was kept holy, or um, you could think of holy not just as morally pure here, but as separate. It was separated out, or holy, from the other six days. In other words, what they do on the six days, they don't do on the Sabbath day. It's different. It's okay for them to be productive. It's okay for them to work. It's okay for them to get things done, but not on this day. It's separated out. It's supposed to be kept holy, different from the other days. 
Now, this holy day was holy because the Israelites had laws governing how they lived around God's presence, the tabernacle. We call those tabernacle laws. And they applied in a certain way to the people when they lived around the tabernacle and the temple. Uh, Because, in other words, God had covenanted with them, because God was sharing his presence with them, because when the tabernacle was built, uh, this on, on this patch of dirt became a sacred space. It wasn't like the other spaces in the world. Because of that, how they lived around that space was to be sacred too. God is giving his presence to them and they can't live any way they want to. That's what the giving of the law is all about. So because they were living around the tabernacle, they were supposed to give this day to God uh, in rest. Uh, Here's some examples of this, how God ties the tabernacle to the command uh, about the Sabbath. In Leviticus uh, 25.2, God connects keeping the Sabbath to possessing the land. Um, he says, when you come into the land which I give you, then shall the land keep a Sabbath unto uh, the Lord. And then Leviticus 26, two, a couple chapters uh, later, God, God is again referencing the sanctuary. He says, you shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Do you see the connection here? When you keep the Sabbaths, what are you reverencing? The sanctuary, God's presence. In other words, I am a holy, different, separated God. And I'm going to live among you and I'm going to dwell among you. So I want how you live with me to be special or different. Does that that all make sense? Are we good? So keeping the Sabbath was a way of honoring God's presence. To live around the tabernacle, they had to do certain things. The Sabbath was one of those things. So this is the command. One day a week they needed to rest. Let's look at the how in verses 9 and 10 that we read just a moment ago. When God gives the command to rest in verses 9 and 10, He doesn't only tell them to rest. The Sabbath command is not a command that simply says, once a week, don't do things, right? No, included in this command is the instruction to work six days a week. That's part of the fourth commandment, is this imperative to work. So uh, some of you may be thinking, well, David, I have issues with nine of the Ten Commandments. I mean, I don't obey them at all, but I got this one down because I don't do anything. No? And your teenagers may tell you that when you try to teach them the Ten Commandments. Uh, No, you're not obeying the the fourth commandment if you don't do anything. Because included in this commandment is this reality that work is good that we serve God by working and, and loving our neighbor and being useful in, and productive in the world to the degree that we can be. However, God has equipped us to do that, and he's equipped us in very different ways. But work is good, so work most of the time, okay? Don't miss that part. Don't miss that. Don't go home and quit your job and say, I'm not going to do anything the rest of my life because I want to obey the fourth commandment. No, nope, you missed it. Don't think that way. Work, but then also rest. Uh, work, which was given before the fall, is basically good. The, the work existed in the garden before the serpent entered the garden, right? Before man sinned, he worked. So work is good. The problem with work is not that it exists. The problem is because our, our, our world has been cursed by sin, that work is, is much more difficult, right? It's, it's, it's a lot harder to get the ground to do what you want it to do, especially, you know, where you live where it doesn't hardly ever rain, 
We're thankful for the rain this week. But living in a sin-cursed earth means uh, sometimes our physical world doesn't cooperate with us and our job is hard. But work itself isn't bad. Yes, in a fallen world, it can be frustrating and we have the temptation to make it an idol and it can be hard. But work is good. Doing nothing is not holy or spiritual. Checking out of life is not holy or spiritual. God is active. He calls us to be active. And if, by the way, the the commands are love God and love your neighbor, if you're going to do that, you're going to have to do a lot of stuff, right? You can't love your neighbor if you don't do anything for your neighbor. So work is good, but rest is good too. So God calls his people to a regular pattern of hard, productive work, but also with regular rest in between the work. Does that make sense? That's what he's calling them to do. All right, let's look at the why in uh, verse 11. Verse 11. It says in verse 11, for in six days, he goes back to the creation story in Genesis, uh, the first chapter of Genesis. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Now, now, um, this is really interesting that we're talking about creation all of a sudden, right? And this is one of the longer commandments. You know, it's not just one verse that says, hey, take a break. There's more than that. Moses, well, ultimately God, brings up the creation story. And here's why. This is the why behind the fourth commandment. By having a, a regular pattern of work and rest, the Israelites were, were proclaiming and confessing what they believed about the creation of the world. They had a creation story, and that impacted how they rested. Here, here's here's uh, another way to think about that. Their pagan neighbors had creation stories. And in all the Mesopotamian creation stories, there's multiple gods. They get, they get angry at each other. And in the midst of their fighting and chaos and hatred, out pop humans. And, and those very same gods were impossible to please, demanded a lot, had no grace, had no concept of love, were selfish. And to please them, you had to work constantly until you died. If you want to have babies, you've got to please the fertility god. Want to have victory in battle? There's another God you got to please. The ancients had all these different pagan deities that were just merciless. But the Israelites had a different creation story. So their work and rest balance was different too. They rested as a way of trusting God, even though their neighbors didn't. Their God did not demand that they work seven days a week. Their God did not demand to be pleased in unrealistic ways. Do you see how this connects? Their God actually not only allows them to rest, but he commands them to rest as an expression of their faith in him. When they were resting every seventh day, they were retelling the story. They were saying, this is how I believe God created the world. This is the God that I serve. This is the God that I worship, so I am going to rest when they were remembering God as creator and their redeemer, here's what they were saying by not working. Here's what they were saying by going out that seventh day and not taking in the harvest and not finishing the well and not doing what could have seemed like life-saving work. They were saying, I'm not the, I'm not the sole provider for my life. I'm going to stop doing stuff the next 24 hours because somebody else takes care of me. I'm going to take a break from what seems like really, really important stuff that I need to do for me and my community and my family. Why? Because somebody else provides my needs. 
I'm going to stop doing stuff because I depend on him and I'm going to rest. That's what verse, verse 11 means. So when they rested, they were saying something about God. And by the way, when we rest, friends, we are saying, we are, we are putting on display what we believe about God. If you don't rest, if you don't rest, if you work yourself constantly, if you have higher expectations of yourself than you can ever possibly meet, if you always need the next promotion, the next job, the next big material thing, the next big purchase, the next bigger, better company, listen, what you're saying by your lack of rest, by your lack of slowing down, by your lack of disengaging, you are saying you provide for yourself. You meet all your own needs. What your reality needs is more of you. But when you rest, you're saying somebody else takes care of me. Somebody else meets my needs. I depend on someone else for the good things in my life. I don't create them myself. Rest is theological. Rest is spiritual. By the way, so is not resting. Not resting sends the opposite message that if I'm going to live my life the way I want to live my life, if my world is going to keep spinning, I have to be the one spinning it. When you don't rest, that's what you're saying. So the Sabbath then shows what it means to be God's people. I mean, God's people are the people who recognize that God has spoken this command to us. Stop, set aside time to rest, trust in me to provide for you. What does this fourth commandment have to do with Christ? Well, in Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says to us that he came to fulfill the law and not to destroy the law. So Jesus has not came to destroy the law. He's not came to uh, erase the Old Testament or to get us to unhitch from the Old Testament or to say that we got it wrong in the Old Testament. No, Jesus has not come to destroy it, okay? He's come to fulfill it. Now, fulfill doesn't mean to preserve unchanged. What fulfill means is to give the true and complete meaning to something. Jesus isn't coming to erase all this. He's not coming to erase the Ten Commandments. He's coming to fill us in on what the Ten Commandments truly mean. And that would include the fourth command as well. So when we think about the Christian's relationship to the law, it's not a matter of, well, I don't have to obey any of it. Because I'm not under the old covenant. No, we're not under the law as covenant. In other words, you're not liable to lose your land if you disobey one of these commands, right? If the Jews don't keep the Ten Commandments as a nation overall, they get kicked out of their land. You may break all ten of the commandments. That doesn't mean you will supernaturally like to forget to pay your mortgage and get kicked out of your house. Now, that could happen. But we're not under the, the Ten Commandments as covenant because we don't, we don't have a land. And we're getting a new earth, which is way better than a strip of land, right? When Jesus comes back, we get the whole thing. But we're not under this as covenant. But we are under it as scripture. That's why Paul says to give attention to the former things that were written. Because they're there for our instruction. These are examples for us so we can learn about who God is and how he calls us to follow him. So uh, this fourth command then is important. But it's important in a different way than it was for them. Uh, Hebrews 8, by the way, and he, if you look at we're not going to read it right now, but if you go, and this is some homework for you, read Hebrews 8, 8 to 12, you'll realize that the law is not uh, 
put away in such a way we can just disobey it and flaunt it, but rather it's internalized in our hearts. So we're not under the law. That doesn't mean you can go out and commit adultery. What it means is if you're a new covenant believer, if you know Jesus and you've been given the Holy Spirit, he is changing your heart in such a way where you don't want to commit adultery. Where you, you don't need Sinai on fire to be afraid to do it because your heart has been transformed and you don't want to do it. And you have the Holy Spirit living within you. So God's not gotten rid of his law. He's internalized the morality of his law so we can obey it from the heart. Jeremiah and Ezekiel say the same thing, but we're not going to go there uh, for time. Now, uh, earlier we, we said, and I know this is getting a little complex, but a lot of, I, a lot of weird ideas about the fourth command are complex. So sometimes undo bad teaching and bad traditions, and some of these are very old traditions, we have to think really carefully. So just bear with me for a moment. I said uh, we connected the Sabbath to the tabernacle, and I said that um, the Sabbath command governed how the Israelites lived around the tabernacle. Now, there were a lot of other laws like that, right? Uh, for instance, the laws about what to do with mold. You find mold in your house, you've got to go get a priest. There's this whole rigmarole they've got to go through. Now, as a New Covenant Christian, you don't get like one of the pastors or deacons to take care of your mold, right? I mean, unless they want to, I guess. I mean, if you, you go into your basement and it's covered in mold in this house you just bought, you're not like, well, I've got to call the leaders of the church. They've got to make sure my house is cleansed, right? And they're going to spend hours down there doing it. Well, no, we don't do that. Now, why don't we do that? Is it because we don't care about the Bible? Well, no. But that was one of the laws that governed life around the tabernacle, and we don't have the tabernacle, right? There's a lot of laws like that. A discharge, we could go into that or not, but we could. It's there in the Bible. Uh, The sacrifices that went on in the tabernacle— Uh, how they picked up and carried the parts of the tabernacle, that's all uh, regulations for living around God's presence that we don't have because we have the Holy Spirit. And the Sabbath is one of those laws. Now, we don't bring sacrifices. Why? Not because we don't believe the Bible, right? We don't don't fail to bring lambs because we don't believe Scripture. We don't bring sacrifices. Why? Because Jesus is our sacrifice. Jesus went to the cross, he died. Not just one of many sacrificial deaths, but he died the real, the final, the true death that all the lambs and other animals were pointing to. Jesus fulfills the law. Well, it turns out when we look at the New Testament and ask, what do the apostles think about the Sabbath? They treat the Sabbath like the sacrifice laws. Not that Jesus has thrown it out, but rather that Jesus is the fulfillment of, of it. So, this especially comes clear to us in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4, and I'm going to read these verses uh, quickly. I can't remember if they're on the screen. I don't think they are. But if you have a Bible and you're, uh, and you wanna, you're curious about this, then join me in Hebrews 4, and we're going to read those first 11 verses. We're going to be fast because it's a long text, but I think it'll be really helpful in, in crystallizing uh, what this means for us. Uh, in the context of the, the Jews who didn't enter their rest, didn't enter their, their promised land, the writer of Hebrews says this, Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left of us entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. The author of Hebrews is writing to Jews who are on the fence about whether or not they want to follow Jesus. Okay, that's, that's the context, and he's, he's warning them. 
Verse 3, for we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath that they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spoke in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. Seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Again, he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, Today, after so long a time as it is said, Today, if you will hear my voice, hearken, or harden not your hearts. For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that has entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Okay, that's a long text, but did you catch this? What the author of Hebrews is doing is the same thing the apostles do with all the sacrificial laws. They're saying this pointed to something greater. This is, not le- this is better than taking a break from work. Jesus is our rest. This is a picture of this, that God will do the work in six days. And after God does the work, he's telling his readers, then we get to enter into rest. And isn't this how salvation works? Salvation is not working the rest of your life all seven days for God in order to try to please him so maybe you can enter into the rest of heaven. No. Here's what he's saying. Salvation is God works. God works. God works. Did you get that? And then we get to enter into the rest of salvation in Christ. So Hebrews 4 then teaches that like all the tabernacle life laws, that like the sacrificial laws, they pointed towards something bigger and greater. They pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ who worked so that we could enter into his rest and be saved. Rest from what? Rest from living in our sin. Rest from trying to please God by our own works. Hey, if, you, if you're a Christian and you can remember when you're not a Christian, you remember how miserable it is to go to sleep not knowing whether God accepts you? You know what that feels like? It feels like work without rest, doesn't it? It feels like you never get a break. It feels like you never get a vacation because you're wondering, if I die, will God let me in or not? It's endless, ceaseless work. And when Jesus died for our sins, when Jesus took our place and took the wrath of God for us, he offers us a rest from all of that. Rest from being a slave to Satan. Rest from being a slave to our own desires and our own wicked hearts. Rest from working, wondering if God accepts me because when I know Christ, I know God accepts me. So the ultimate fulfillment of the fourth commandment then is the forgiveness of sin that we find in Christ. For the Christian, our ultimate rest is resting in the Lord Jesus. Are you all still with me? Are we good? All right. A couple of you, that's enough. When we give up trying to save ourselves, when we give up trying to save ourselves, we enter into Jesus' rest. All right, there's more here. Uh, We're not going to read Colossians 2, but if you go to Colossians 2, Paul says, uh, don't judge people in whether or not they keep the Sabbath. Now, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, Paul doesn't say that about adultery. He doesn't say, hey, if you see someone have adultery, don't judge them. That's their choice. Well, well, no. But he does say that about the Sabbath, and he says it about all holy days. Why? Well, Paul says in Colossians 2, verses 16 through 17, because the Sabbath is a shadow. 
The shadow's not the real thing. But whenever there's a shadow, there's something greater, more substantial, leaving the shadow, right? And that's what Jesus is with this command to have Sabbath. Now, you may be wondering, well, David, if this is all uh, pointing to Jesus Christ, then what in the world is this, and is any of this have to do with actual physical rest? You're saying this is about Jesus. This is about resting spiritually in him for our forgiveness of sin. So, so David, what, what does this sermon have to do with, like, how much I sleep? Well, uh, we'll, we'll get there, I promise. Uh, number, number three, let's talk about the Sabbath and the Lord's Day. Because some of you are wondering now, isn't Sunday like the new Sabbath? Isn't that what happened? The short answer is no. No. Um, the Sabbath was for doing nothing. It was for rest, not worship. And worship is far from doing nothing. Unless you come in here on Sunday morning and you just sleep and you don't do anything. But if you come and you, and you talk to people, and especially if you get involved and you have a volunteer ministry, well, you're not doing nothing on a Sunday, right? And that is okay. Uh, the Lord's Day is not uh, the Sabbath. Um, from the early centuries, it was understood that the Jewish Sabbath was Saturday, the Christians' Lord Day, Lord's Day was Sunday, but they made no connection at all to these things for hundreds and hundreds of years. Now, some of you may think, well, I want to obey the fourth commandment by not working on Sunday. Isn't that kind of the same thing? Well, um, if you're going to follow it the way the Jews followed it, you would have to work during all daylight doing manual labor Monday through Saturday. And I don't know if many of us really want to do that, right? Okay, no takers. So, yeah, the Sabbath is not the Lord's Day. Now, you may be wondering, well, then does Sunday matter at all? Well, yes. Sunday matters a lot for different reasons. The apostles' practice was to meet on the first day of the week because that's when Jesus rose from the dead. So when we come in on Sunday, we're not remembering Sinai. We're not remembering the fire and smoke. When we come on Sunday, like Christians have done since the apostles... We're remembering the empty grave. We're not coming to do nothing. We're coming to worship Jesus, to hear the preaching of his word, to encourage each other, to watch people get baptized, to grow in our knowledge of the scriptures, to pray together, to sing together. That is far from nothing. And we're not doing it because of Sinai. We're doing it because Jesus took our place and rose from the dead on Sunday. So we do the least we can do and rise from our bed on Sunday morning. So Sunday worship is important, but Sunday worship is really not about the fourth commandment. All right, let's finish. How do we respond to this? In other words, how do we take away something practical, David, from this fourth commandment? God tells us to rest. What do we do in response to this? Well, first, and this should be obvious, but I don't want to take it for granted, that as Christians, we have this privilege. We can treasure the spiritual rest that is ours in Christ. We can treasure the spiritual rest that is ours in Christ. Have you ever thought about your salvation as a kind of rest? Like the writer of Hebrews was just talking about? Does salvation to you feel like rest? Now, I don't want to take for granted tonight that everybody in here is a Christian. Because for, for some of you, depending on your background and your religious background, your ideas about God and how to, how to become a Christian... Uh, when you hear the word salvation, you tense up and you have questions like, 
Uh, how young was I when I got baptized? Have I lived a good life? Have I committed any mortal sins? Have I done enough to please God? And, and when you hear the word salvation, you don't think of rest. You think of anxiety and fear. And in that way, you could be a little like the older son in the parable in Luke 15. When the younger son comes home, he gets a party. The older son hears the party and he's not happy. Why is he so unhappy about somebody having a party? Because he tell, as he tells his father, all these years have I served you. And the word there essentially means serving like a slave. All these years, dad, I've been like a slave for you. And you're going to give out your favor free? That's what his relationship with, was like with his dad. Just as estranged as his younger brother. And, and why did he have no real relationship with his dad? Because he tried to slave for his dad in order to please him. And if you're not a Christian, but you're trying to be, or you, you think you may be, if, if your salvation experience, for you, if you think of salvation and you think that means trying really hard to make God happy until I die, and hope what they say at my funeral is true, that's not salvation. No, that's not salvation. That's work. Salvation is like rest. Salvation is that feeling when you come home and you think everything's done. That's what it's like to come into the arms of Jesus. When you trust in his death in your place, you can think everything's done. He did it for me. He rose from the dead so he could beat death for me. He died on the cross so he could take my sin for me. That is rest. And if you are a Christian, then then friend, treasure the spiritual rest that is yours in Christ. It's the same advice that I would give to a lost person. Only in Jesus can you find rest. It is tragic that there are people who believe the gospel. They, 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 they get saved. They make, they make a profession. They, they, they trust in Jesus. They believe the gospel. And then they get baptized. They join a church. They start to live the Christian life. But even though they, there was this point in their life where they believed the gospel, they lived the rest of their life forgetting the gospel. They always think God is after them. Something bad happens to them and they're wondering, is God judging me? Like, is he, is he against me? Christian, don't forget the gospel. Salvation is supposed to feel like rest. What does Jesus say in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30? To, to people uh, that are struggling under the weight of all their religious obligations in order to try to make God happy that they can never satisfy. Jesus says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. My burden is light. Let me ask you this, if you're a Christian. Does Jesus' yoke feel easy to you today? Do you know what the easy yoke is? I mean, do you remember the gospel enough to wake up and know that God loves you, that you're in his favor, that he loves you as much as he loves his own son? Is your yoke easy? And then is your burden light? Because <laughs> it should be. And it can be if you remember what God says about you and if you believe what God says about you. Uh, number two, and then we'll be, we'll be done. Number two, not only should you treasure the spiritual rest that you have in Christ, but friends, we should also practice physical rest as a spiritual discipline. Now, even though we don't live with the tabernacle, we still have bodies that need physical rest. Like we, we desperately need them. Rest is good. I'm reading a book by uh, Matthew Walker, who's basically like a sleep doctor. And he, it's a book called Why We Sleep. Really fascinating. You should get it. 
Uh, I'm just going to share a couple quotes that I found fascinating from the, the, from the introduction and, and the first couple of chapters. He said, more than a third of adults in first world nations get less sleep than they need. More than a third. That's a lot of people not getting enough sleep. He says, routinely sleeping less than six hours a night weakens your immune system. It increases your risk of certain forms of cancer. Insufficient sleep is a key factor linked to your risk of developing Alzheimer's. Inadequate sleep, even slight reductions of sleep for just one week messes up your blood sugar levels so much that you could be classified as a pre-diabetic if you're not sleeping well. Short sleeping increases the likelihood of your arteries becoming blocked and brittle. You have more chances of cardiovascular disease, stroke, congestive heart failure, on and on it goes. Not good stuff. Um, And he recommends that we're supposed to sleep seven to nine hours. Now, some of you are thinking, I don't have time to sleep seven hours. I I have so much to do in my life, I can only sleep two hours. Right, But, but what does our rest say about how we trust God to take care of us? If you really think your 24-hour day needs 22 or 21 or 20 hours of you awake, is it possible, is it possible that you're not really trusting that God is the creator and the sustainer of the world? Remember, when the Israelites took one day off a week, what were they saying? They were retelling the creation story. They were retelling the creation story. They were saying, we don't make and take care of ourselves. He does. And if you're not resting, and that doesn't mean just sleep, it, it, this, this applies to a lot of other things. Uh, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you should do the most at work. You should be the most godly at work. It doesn't mean you should do the most at work. If that means taking every opportunity of overtime, staying at the office late every night, never seeing your family, that's not godly. Even if you feel productive and that makes you feel better about yourself, God calls us to rest as an act of trusting him. And to fail to rest is to not trust him, but rather to trust ourselves. So then if you're spiritually anxious tonight, I invite you to rest in Jesus. I invite you to rest in Jesus. And if you're physically exhausted tonight because you have put demands on yourself that God never intended you to put on yourself, take some rest. Take some rest. When we rest, we are saying, God will take care of me. I'm resting in him. When we rest trying to please God and be a good person and find salvation in Christ, what are we saying? God takes care of my salvation. God takes care of my soul. And then when we rest and balance our work with disengagement and sleep and solitude and even vacation when we can, we're saying, God created my body. And like he takes care of my soul in salvation, he'll take care of my body too. So, as the Lord is saying to his people. Christians, stop doing stuff. Amen?